I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is filmmaker Bo McGuire. His new film, which was featured at the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, is Socks on Fire. It won the jury prize for best documentary feature, actually. Uh, His award-winning film is a lyrical testament to Southern women couched in the familial battle for his beloved grandmother's throne. Uh, Bo McGuire returned home from New York City to Hoax Bluff, Alabama, to find that his Aunt Sharon, his favorite childhood relative, had locked her gay drag queen brother, his Uncle John, out of the family home. As a queer Southerner who is both protective and skeptical of the South, this family rupture stoked a fire within McGuire to document the place and the people he calls home. Through a series of stylized reenactments spun in with his family VHS footage, McGuire documents the fluidity of identity, personality, and performance in his hometown among his kin and the many women who have been a force in Bo's life. Welcome to the show, Bo. Nice to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm glad you won. I was at the film festival. I had friends who had films in the festival. It was great. Um, I've I just got, I've read, I've seen three quarters of your film, and I have to say, I can't wait to get back to it. So, I mean, I think that's a testament to uh, how good it is, besides the award. But, yeah, it's really good. And, uh, boy, you're, I have to say, I don't know if the word is brave. I mean, going back and uh, interviewing your family. Let's talk about that uh, because how how was that for you? And and I'm as a and to, to be honest, not a lot of family members as close as they are to you would agree to that. Uh, I'm thinking of my own family. So um, how'd you get them to <laughs> how'd you get them to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always say the same line about this question, which is um, I kept them in the dark as long as possible. Uh, anytime we were shooting, uh, and you know, it's, I know my family better than anyone. And I have, uh, you know, I'm of them. I grew up with them. I grew up inside of them, within them. And, uh, because of, you know, traveling around, I'm also, I have been without them. So coming back was like, um, a really wonderful occasion. Um, I say without them, but they're always, they're always living in my heart and the way I speak and the way I see uh, myself when I look in the mirror. But, um, you know, I mean, it really wasn't that complicated. Maybe it's just uh, my kind of way with them where I would I would sweet talk them into doing it. Or if I, I just knew each other, each of their personality. So I knew, you know, if I told mom, hey, we're coming to interview you, she would be beside herself thinking about, oh, my God, I'm going to be on camera. What am I going to say? Am I going to sound stupid? But if I told mom, hey, we're just going to show up and we're going to cook and we're going to hang out. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll bring a camera and do a little setup. That was a lot better of a way of approaching her. Um, just sort her. of like leading her <laughs> into it. So I always say, you know, I just kept them in the dark as much as, much as possible and charmed my way into uh, talking them into doing it. Okay, so you tricked your mom and dad into being filmed, <laughs> which is it's so very casual, right? And uh, they agreed to that, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah, I don't know uh, if trick's the right word, but definitely <laughs> talked them into it. You know, they're pretty much game. We, we, we live by a tribe mentality, so they're kind of game for anything. I know that about them. 
But you know that about them, but they also, uh, as a mother, your mother knows a lot about you, too. So she has a sense, mm-hmm. I would assume, of where you're coming from. Um, she knows your history. Uh, so sure. any, yeah. So uh, let's talk about, like, the theme. I mean, Aunt Sharon, your, your nanny wanted, when she died, didn't leave a will, Right? She did? She did not. Right. She did not leave her will. No. Okay. But she wanted your uncle to have the house. And so... That was the understanding. Yeah. Yeah. That was the understanding. Okay. Let's talk about what really happened or what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't... You know, this, this is the thing about socks on fire is that the facts are somehow, you know, they get lost... I get lost in the mud because, you know, I wasn't, I haven't had any contact with Aunt Sharon. I don't really know what the A to B of her plan of, of, of kind of naming herself administrator of the estate was and what the sort of ins and outs of like her subterfuge of, uh, of getting the house were. But I do know that it had, we had all been on the same page and I just don't know if um, we all had all been on the same page about Uncle John getting the house and everything. You know, it was my mother's the oldest. So it was sort of assumed that she would kind of take on the matriarch role and and kind of divide everything evenly, which is very much her personality and what she'd always said she was going to do. Um, but, you know, I think that when when someone close to you dies, like your mother, uh, father, et cetera, so forth, that it can open you in really beautiful ways. And I think it can also open really uh, terrifying parts of you that you haven't addressed yet. And I think that some of us get left with uh, feelings of not feeling included and feelings of being left out. And that that can sort of, when you're alone in that pain and you don't think that you're a part of the family as you should be, which is what I always think Aunt Sharon felt, um, that you sort of uh, that that bitterment that that bitterness that resentment can grow into a rage that is unlike anything I've ever seen, and uh, you can do things that normally. I mean, you know, I grew up. Aunt Sharon was my hero, so for her to sort of go behind my mother's back, claim administrator of the estate, and then kick Uncle John out of the house—the only house he'd ever lived in, the only house he'd ever known. Um, you know, I just have to think about like what sort of what sort of feelings she had inside, and what sort of caused her to do that. And that's the the occasion of the documentary for me is to try to figure out where I am positioned as I watch my heroes sort of become the villain of my family, or the, the at least the problem of my family, at least the um, the the implosion point. Well, I, I th- when someone dies, I think you just kind of touched on that. It's like all those unresolved issues, and we don't necessarily know what they are, maybe just explode when that happens, and, and which sounds like is what's happened with your aunt and with, with other, other people, too. So, um, and, and it's playing itself out. Um, so, where do you fit into this picture now since you finished the, finished the picture, finished the film? Well, I guess I'm always, I'm still what I am. It's my, I'm Nanny's favorite grandson. That's what I would say, her favorite grandchild. I, I don't know if she'd ever say that, but I would say it. I would claim it. Um, 
And, you know, I think that what I have at the end of this is a record of Nanny's legacy that exists outside of this sort of probate court battle that Aunt Sharon dragged my family into. Um, and I kind of, you know, I always say mom's the reluctant matriarch. I mean, she is the matriarch of my family uh, forever now. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of rest there. I kind of rest at her throne. Um, I am, um, but I am my own kind of matriarch too. I am my own, uh, <laughs> I am an only child, an only Taurian son. So, um, you know, I just, I just think, uh, where am I situated? I am, uh, I am a proud son of these women, even Aunt Sharon. Uh, you know, I carry a lot of her spirit in me, whether or not she would be proud of that or not. So I, I look at myself as the, the banner carrier still and, and the firework starter, I guess. So you've done, I mean, in viewing your family in the film, um, I don't know what the word is. It's not really outlier, but like you are so um, different in the sense that, you know, you're this sophisticated filmmaker. Um, you you know, you're living in, like, you have an MFA from uh, from Tish, right? That's correct, for better yeah. or worse. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the film festival, boy, there are a lot of uh, Tish filmmakers there, I would say. Uh, probably a disproportionate yeah. amount. Yeah, right. So, I mean, this is part of an elite group, which you are. Um, you know, that's a different background than, you know, as I see your family in the film, how does, what's that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, well, sophisticated is, I, 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 um, I, I would, you know, I don't know if I've ever been called that because I do use uh, ain't and I do show up in jean shorts, cutoffs most of the time. I still, that's all to say that I still remain an Alabama boy. I'm still, I've always been, but I've always played in the creeks, always will. But, I will say, I think this has something to do with my queer narrative and queerness in the South, which is, even though I was raised, you know, the center of my family, the, the uh, light in my mother's eye and nanny's eye, and was really loved and cherished in my family, really felt supported by them, I also grew up knowing that I was queer at some point. And that, you know, puts everything in jeopardy in a Southern house and when you come from a Southern family, you know, in the South we're taught that family is everything and, and your faith is so important and it's the bedrock of everything. But then when you realize that you're queer, you see how people are treated in their families once they've come out. It can be, it can be a really beautiful thing. It can also be a terrifying, dangerous thing. Um, and so I always sort of have known what it means to be both a beloved insider and carry the fear of being an outsider or also the power of being an outsider of seeing of seeing the center for what it is rupaul always says you know that ability to see that the emperor has no clothes on that there is no man behind the curtain when you get to oz i mean there is only a man behind the curtain when you get to oz so i think that that kind of um that that sort of duality is something i'm used to writing and I think that it leaps over into my artistic self. And I think that Socks on Fire is really a reclaiming of my queer self and my artistic self in the South. Um, and I think that, you know, if anything, being away and being sort of studied and, and tish and learning and learning film and all that, it, it gave me a window into seeing 
the people I love and care about as characters. I mean, I had always wanted to be a narrative film director and write scripts. And all of the characters in my scripts were really just versions of the people I grew up around. So the power of documentary and what Tish taught me there was um, that uh, you can just put a camera in front of someone and they can be telling the same kind of brilliant story that you might have to have a lot of money to make in a narrative feature. Um, so I guess just being away in that sort of artistic queer slant gave me a way of seeing these people as versions of their actual selves, of characters. You know, I'm always very careful to say that uh, the villain of Aunt Sharon is based on definitely her actions, but I, they're, it's not true to exactly who she is. It's uh, some version of her that lives in my queer imagination running around wild up there. So when you got, do you feel closer to each one of these, uh, well, their family members and or characters, or is there more of a distance, emotional distance? I feel like there's a, a, a great, there's always been a closeness with me and my parents. We've always been sort of inseparable. I'm their only, I'm my mother's only child. I'm the only child uh, of them as a couple. And they've always supported me artistically. I grew up with a very sort of, um, you know, strange for the South, a dad who was very bookish, didn't go out and hunt, but uh, sat inside and read and read and read and was very worldly. So I've always been supportive artistically. And, um, you know, my coming out process was a lot easier than it had been if I had been born to a a Southern preacher or something like that, another kind of Southern preacher. But um, I will say that... So you're okay, but I want to stop you there. I was going to ask you. Yeah. All right, finish that, and then I've got to answer that question. Then I have another one. Then. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would say that closeness only that closeness has always been, always will be the closeness between Uncle John and I making this film. I think really sort of uh, brought us together and let us leave some of our our pettiness about being the baby of the family aside when we could really see we were doing this for each other. And, you know, for others, Aunt Sharon, it allowed me to let her go in a way, the person that she is today. I was able to rescue what I loved of her growing up and was able to separate myself from the sort of um, terror she enacted upon my family and and that person that she is today. I don't know if she is that person today. I haven't talked to her, to be honest, but the person she was when all this was going down, at least. So the coming out process, your coming out process, let's talk about that because yes. it's been Pride Week and, um, you know, I think that's uh, important to talk about with you as a filmmaker. So how, when did you come out and what was the process for you? Yes, happy Pride, Catherine. Um, yes. I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I came out pretty early, I think, especially for someone who lived in a town of uh, like 5,000 in Alabama. I came out around 16, junior year of high school. And, you know, I had a very kind of, I always, I mean, I had been very bullied in school. I mean, not physically, but verbally and, and all of those kinds of ways that, that, that people, young people can be horrible to each other. But I also came up, I realized that I'm very lucky to have come up in a time when Will and Grace, as problematic as it can be, was, uh, looking back on it now, was on the air. And so I had this, I had this sort of, um, I don't know, sparkle about being the gay boy. And a lot of my friends were the very popular girls in high school. And so there was this switch happening because of popular culture, because of what was on the television, that the girls suddenly thought it was 
safe and beautiful and cool to have a gay best friend. And then, you know, once I found out, once you get all the um, cool girls on your side, the boys kind of stand down. They might talk behind your back and say shitty things, but they're not going to attack you because they'd have the uh, very powerful females that are running the halls all the time um, after them. So, and so that's sort of how it came community wise. And then, you know, when I told my mother was the first person in my family I came out to, and she had a very difficult time with it for about three weeks. And we had always been close. And so eventually I got the gumption to go to her and say, um, you know, mom, we've always been close. If you continue to alienate yourself from me because of this, it's going to be on you because like, I'm just trying to be honest with you about who I am. And since that moment, my mother has become more and more a loving, open. I mean, she always has been this person, but she's really put it into practice now. And especially in her community and within her friends, she sort of is this progressive, loving voice um, that's really an anomaly in somewhere like Hoax Bluff, Alabama. Uh, and she always says, you know, having you and your story has changed who I am. So it's this really reciprocal, beautiful relationship. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, I, and I always say that, like, the thing about being queer in the South is that it exists here and it can be joyful. There's not, there are narratives that are rooted in joy and triumphancy. I don't know what that, what that word is. Anyway, triumph um, instead of pain and loss. I mean, all that trauma is definitely there, and there's no escaping that uh, the South politically anyway, government-wise, can be a very closed-off conservative space to difference. But I think individually on a community basis, there is room for love and, and, and queerness that I've experienced anyway. And that's also coming from a white heterosexual uh, homosexual cisgendered man. Um, I don't know if I'm homosexual anymore. Anyway, whatever, whatever sexuality whatever you, gender is yeah. on the spectrum, I say, <laughs> I would say, you know, there's a lot of privilege in, in the way I present my body and myself and, and my, and my whiteness. So, um, uh, that's, that I don't want to overlook the, the trauma, the very real pain of people too, um, yeah. here. But well, just to this say, this next generation, the younger generation, younger than I, younger than my, you know, I'm a baby boomer. It's, um, it's changed everything in terms of gay or straight or, you know, you, you know, you don't have to define yourself if you don't want to. Why should right. you? You can be attracted to whomever you want to be. And that's all changed in the past, what, 10 years, five years, even maybe. Like, yeah, you don't, very yeah. quickly. Which, I guess is what you're saying, right? You don't necessarily define yourself as well, I just, queer. I just, yeah, I just get, you... yeah I, I think queer is the best term for me because it's not only, my friend Jackie Clay always says, it's not only rooted in who I sleep with, it's who I, who I, what my politic is, how I, how I see the world functioning. Um, so while, yes, so I, I just feel any sort of old labels, I feel like can be dropped to the ground these days. Um, yeah, yeah, which is a good. Yeah, it's. A, I think it's a good thing. Anyway, but I want to get yeah, but back. I, I make oh, yeah. out with boys, but anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so <Yeah>. do I. <laughs> so, yeah. Good for you. <laughs> yes, sounds good. I want to get back to your mother too, because you know you were saying when you came yeah. out to your mother, she had three weeks to like get over it, and you know I love you, you love me. 
But I think as a mother, you kind of, she probably always knew. I mean, she had a sense of you, and especially since you are her only son. And I think in the in, in your film, you said you're Nanny's favorite because you were the oldest of the oldest of the oldest. So you kind of, no one was going to let go of you. Right. I mean, I think that I knew that to be true. Now, if mother was here talking to you, she would tell you. She, to herself, she did not know. I mean, that's what she says to this day. Excuse me. And I think that that denial can be that great, uh, especially in a place in Alabama, and especially when you're wanting, you know, I mean, I think a lot of mothers sort of trepidation about my coming out experience was not wanting me to be in pain or to experience any sort of, you know, uh, outcast um, from from the very close community I grew up in. Um, so that's what, but yes, I, I think she always knew me and there was no letting go of me. Same to be said for Nanny. And I mean, this is always a conversation I have with with mother and with Uncle John, which is like, did Nanny know? I say 100% she had to know. She used to walk around and say things to me like, you're going to be just like your Uncle John. You ain't going to get married. You ain't gonna ha- you're ain't going. you not interested <laughs> in having kids. You're just going to be yourself. So in that way, I think she knew, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, I think the denial can be great. But I think, you know, I was very lucky to have. And, that's, and when I say three weeks, you know, I think that was her crying on the couch. It was, you know, years till she got comfortable enough to go to a drag show. But now I don't <laughs> think you could keep her out of them. Now she loves it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and she loves queer people. She loves gay people. She she loves, I mean, you know, it, it took her having a gay son, I think, to really give her the permission to be the loving saint of this world that she is. Whereas my dad, on the other hand, when I went and told him, he was like, yeah, I already know that. The man had been buying me Judy Garland CDs since I was 12. So um, I don't know how to say, you know, that that uh, dad knew and mom didn't, but that's that's their story and they're sticking to it, I guess. Yeah. So I have a question. You're you're well. We only have three minutes left, but I just wanted to get your take on because I've been to most all. I would say all the pride parades since when they start, not since when they started, but. Um, this there I was in New York and. Um, a couple of days ago, well, I've been there, but uh, for a few weeks. But what do you think of the? Do you think it's different this year? The gay, the the pride. The, well, there's no parade, but just the whole atmosphere. A lot of twenty somethings, a lot of really, really young people, gay and straight. Kind of a different feel. Yeah, well, I think after this past year, everything feels different, and I think that what is called for is next level creative thinking. And I think a lot of queer people and a lot of not queer people, a lot of a lot of people who feel different because of race or because of their gender or because of whatever, X, Y, and Z, they don't fit the um, white, cis, hetero mold anymore, feel very united in a way and feel like that, that coming out and, and using your body as a place to hold, as a, a, a as a thing to hold space and also protect people and also push back on the power is, um, I think it's all just a product of this past year we've been through. I feel, I feel like people are really empowered to be together and to um, to throw their voices up. 
And I think that we have seen how when you push back on power in a very real way, it can lead to change. Now, the change is incremental and it's slow, but I think like people are more united and the crowd is more diverse. I think that yeah. the queer people, people of color see, see themselves. I think that we see the intersections of where queerness and, and race and, and all those things, um, all those things intersect now and that there's power in our united voice together. Yeah, well, that's well said. Thank you. Just a minute left. So, te- I mean, it's been great talking to you, uh, Bo McGuire, um, and his mm-hmm. and his film is Socks on Fire. Great film. I have to get off and finish it right now. But give us a website and or websites to go to so we can. Uh, well, we'll yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been uh, we've been doing Uncle John's Traveling Salvation Show, which is we we travel this the dusty old land doing both uh, drag shows and screening the film. And if you go to our website, SocksOnFireFilm.com, you can sign up for our newsletter and find out where we'll be next. We know we'll be in Birmingham for our homecoming at at Sidewalk Film. And we've got some other dates, some very exciting dates coming up. And then you can follow us on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at SocksOnFireFilm. Great. And you won't be bored if you follow us. Okay. (laughs) That's a promise. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Catherine. You have a wonderful day. Yep, you too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 